the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Good day and welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. First up this week, we'll take a look at the ever-expanding Web Summit in Dublin. A little later, we'll examine the latest developments in the Volkswagen emissions scandal. With 43,000 attendees at large in Ballsbridge, the Web Summit is something of an extravaganza for the tech crowd. Pamela Newingham has been covering the story for the Irish Times, and she joins us now by phone from the RDS. Pamela, how's it all going down there? Hello, it's an absolutely amazing atmosphere down here. I just feel money and deals all around me, and I kind of nearly want to be out there hustling myself. Um, There's a huge number of people. There's over 2,100 startups. There's over 1,000 investors. And as you said earlier, there's 40,000 attendees. And there's just a really positive vibe and atmosphere down here. Everyone's very excited. Everyone's talking to startups and entrepreneurs and investors and everything. And there's deals being done left, right and center. And lots of people are, you know, trying to do partnerships as well, which was kind of very interesting. A lot of people had come here not just to get a deal or get exposure for the company, but also to seek out new partners for their startups. So, Pamela, when we, when we leave aside the row between the founder of the summit, Paddy Cosgrave, and the government, and we leave aside apparent disquiet of the food down there, it, it sounds like there's a, quite a lot of activity going on at the summit proper. There really is. And there's some very, very cool things down here and, you know, some very unique ideas. But there's definitely um, a lot of jargon as well. So I think uh, one of the buzzwords of the summit is onboarding, which everyone's kind of talking about. It basically, it just means, means bringing on new staff, but no one will say hiring new staff. They'll all say onboarding. And, and uh, onboarding the, the uh, experts in the world of human resources will tell you is, is a little bit more than a, a mere induction. <laughs> yeah. And Internet of Things is very popular. Um, gad- there's a lot of gadgets and everyone's talking about connectivity from connected cars to connected umbrellas. I saw a startup this morning from France and they have just brought out a smart umbrella and they launched it at Web Summit and it is linked to an app on your phone and you get an alert on the app on your phone that tells you it's going to rain that day because your phone will know where you are from geolocation data and it'll know the kind of weather forecast for that area. So it reminds you to bring your umbrella out because it's going to rain. And then uh, when you're out and you're using your umbrella, it collects a lot of the information such as the humidity, the amount of rain, everything. And then if you accidentally leave your umbrella in a restaurant or somewhere, which so often happens to many of us, when you're leaving the restaurant, your phone will start buzzing and there'll be a message saying, don't leave me behind, you've forgotten me from the umbrella. So the phone is connected to the umbrella. It sure is. So I thought that was very appropriate for Ireland and they've chosen the Web Summit to launch here because of all the rain that we have. And it's raining here today, so very appropriate. Very interesting indeed. Now, I've had several uh, attempts to have the Internet of Things explained to me, and uh, frankly, it remains uh, really quite a mystery. So I'm not going to ask you to uh, to explain <laughs> what all of that is about, but what's the atmosphere in, in terms of the startup companies and what kind of products, in addition to this uh, umbrella app, uh, are on displays at the event? Well, actually, I can explain the Internet of Things very easily to you. It's about connecting any object or device to the Internet. So, for example, you could connect your fridge to the Internet. 
And then your fridge would tell you uh, when you're running low on milk, so you could buy more milk. And I know Bosch, uh, the big kind of kitchen appliance company, they've just put cameras into fridges that they're launching next year. And that camera is connected to the internet. So if you are in a shop and you want to know, do you have certain items of food? Like, are you low on butter? You can just go on your phone and see the camera in your fridge and see, you know, how much tomatoes you have or butter and milk and that kind of stuff. Gosh, no, I, I can tell you with, uh, with uh, three kids at home, I can tell you it would be news in my house if we weren't running short of milk. <laughs> and so there are a lot of kind of Internet of Things startups down here. And there's just a lot of new ways to do things. So, like, for example, uh, this one girl, Heidi Zach, her company is called Third Love. And she has developed an app to help women better identify their bra size. And she's just raised $5 million in funding to develop the app. And, you know, bras have been around for decades and decades. But, you know, she's kind of revolutionized the whole way women shop for bras. And another kind of thing on the Internet of Things is that every company is comparing themselves to another company. So they'll say they're the Uber for this or the Airbnb for that. So I came across a very interesting startup earlier today from Sweden, and that was called Hand Discover. And the founder of that, his son was in a wheelchair, and he found that when they were trying to book holidays abroad, it was really difficult trying to find accommodation that was suitable for a wheelchair. And be it a hotel or just like renting a holiday home, often they would say they're wheelchair accessible, but it would just be the building. The entire apartment wouldn't be wheelchair accessible. So he has developed a site, which is like a cross between Booking.com and Airbnb for people in wheelchairs. And it has over 800 properties in seven countries. He just launched three weeks ago. And every single property is completely kitted out for wheelchairs. So I thought that was a very good startup. And he's quite a successful entrepreneur himself. He was telling me that back in 2001, not long after eBay had launched, he created a copycat website to eBay in Sweden. And then three years later, he sold it to eBay. Wow. And, and is he in the process of raising money for this new venture as we speak? He is, yeah. So he, like many startups, is here right now trying to raise money. He's in the middle of a seed round. So that is kind of when you're getting money from angel investors before you do a proper funding round with venture capital firms. He's trying to raise money for that. He's trying to get exposure for his site. And he's also trying to develop partnerships. So, for example, one partnership he's got is with a Street View company, and they are giving him lots of Street View maps. So people can not only see the entire inside of the house, but they can see what the house looks like on the outside and where it is on the street, and they can kind of look all around the neighborhood. Very interesting indeed. Uh, Pamela, how does one distinguish at an event at which there are many thousands of people, how does one distinguish between the money people, in other words, the investors, and the entrepreneurs who are hoping to attract investment into their new businesses? So everyone has uh, these land yards around their neck, and they're like badges that identify them. And they're quite high up, so you see them very, very easily. And there's different colors for investors, entrepreneurs, journalists, and there's a bit of a running joke at the Web Summit at the moment because everyone's are very visible except for apparently all the investors are turning theirs around because they're just being hassled left, right, and center. So they kind of turn theirs around so people can't see their investors so they can kind of move around all the startups a bit more discreetly. So that's kind of, that was kind of funny. So they're, uh, they're, not, they're not waving wads of money. <laughs> no, no. I think they're, they're trying to keep a low profile at times because everyone will want to talk to them. 
Well, one, one of our one of our journalistic colleagues was uh, t- tweeting o- only yesterday that he he wore a suit and uh, shirt and tie and all the rest of it uh, yesterday and found himself being approached by people who assumed he was one of the investor class uh, <laughs> with millions to spend. I would believe that for sure. And you know, it's it's actually very expensive for investors to come to the Web Summit. Like a lot of them will pay thousands, some thousands of euro just to attend and meet startups. So they they definitely want to find some good startups. One thing that struck me, though, is definitely the lack of female entrepreneurs and the lack of uh, female speakers. But that is something, you know, Web Summit is very conscious of itself as well. And actually, just today, they announced that they're going to give 10,000 free tickets to female entrepreneurs next year for their event. And that event, of course, will be in Lisbon. Yep, it will. Now, Pamela, it sounds like it's uh, pretty busy over there, but uh, you've also been interviewing Oshin Hanrahan, who's an Irish entrepreneur whose company Handy has just secured €50 million, Euro, uh, dollars, I beg your pardon, uh, in funding for his American-based startup. Now, the company provides on-demand cleaning and DIY services, sounds pretty useful to me, and it proposes to use the money to expand the business in more than 28 cities. So, Oshin, you recently sealed a $50 million funding round. Congratulations. Uh, What will you use the money for? Thanks so much. So, we started Handy three years ago to figure out how can we deliver the best experience to customers and the best experience to pros when they're buying and selling cleaning and handyman services. So, that idea of delivering every service to every home is something that was at the core of Handy right from the start. And we focused on cleaning services. Today we're in 28 cities, 25 in the US, two in Canada and London. Deliver over 100,000 transactions every single month. Over 10,000 contractors on the platform, 10,000 people earning money every single week on Handy. And this funding announcement is another milestone along the way. So we're gonna focus on making sure that over the next six months we continue to build out the experience for our existing customers in existing cities. And After that, we'll look at adding new services and adding new cities. You made some acquisitions in the last while of other companies doing similar things to you. Any more plans for other acquisitions? So when we look at the customer experience and the pro experience, this is a two-sided marketplace. Customers want to be on the platform that has the most pros, has the most handymen, have the most cleaners. Cleaners and handymen want to be on the platform with the most customers. That means density is so important. It doesn't matter to the person in Chicago whether you've got extra cleaners in Cleveland. They care about whether you've got more cleaners in Chicago. So this idea of density on a per city level has been at the core of what Handy's focused on for the last three years. So we haven't launched a new city in the last 18 months. We have made a couple of acquisitions. So on the West Coast, we bought uh, we bought a company called Exec gave us a strong West Coast base, added customers, added pros to the platform, really allowed us to dominate on the West Coast. We added uh, we added Mop in London, obviously a great acquisition for us. Mop was the leader in London at the time. And what we've seen is, as the London market's grown, as density has increased, the growth rate has just continued to accelerate. So when, when we think about acquisitions, we really think about that idea of adding density in every single market that we're in so that we can continue to improve the customer experience, continue to improve the pro experience. Uh, you've come a long way in three years, just over three years. I think you're pulling in two million a week now, is that correct? So we haven't commented on exactly how much we're doing per week in terms of transaction volume. What we have said is, Handy's doing over 100,000 transactions every single month. 
And yeah, it's come a very long way in three years. We've been very lucky. Business has grown incredibly fast. We've recruited an extremely strong team across the board. So our CFO, Jeff Peterson, to our CTO, Ken Little, who came out at Tumblr. He was the head of all of engineering there. To our VP of data science, who recently joined us, who came out of Birchbox. We've recruited a really strong team uh, on operations as well, where you've got my co-founder, Among, and uh, Carolyn Childers, who came out of Soap.com. So you see these really strong people, and those folks are really what's allowed Handy to scale over the last three years. So you started Handy while still a student at Harvard University. Uh, I don't think you ever finished Harvard University, did you? Tell us kind of how the idea came about and how you started the business. So before, uh, before Harvard, one of the things I worked on was real estate development and construction. I always had that problem of how do you find people you can trust to do small tasks. Uh, I spent some time at Boston. I was in uh, business school there. It's where my co-founder and I met. And again, had that problem of living in a new city, uh, not knowing how to contact a handyman. And it was that idea of how can we solve this problem? How can we get to a place where you can press a button and have something delivered to your home? That kind of struck both of us as this is a really big market. There's a huge opportunity. We can help our pros. We can help people. We can help handymen sell in a better way. We can help customers buy services in a better way. And in the summer between first and second year of business school, we started really building out that idea. And one of the first things we noticed was how incredibly strong the value prop is for people on the sell side. So it's really obvious to customers, hey, this is going to be a better way to buy. But you don't really think about the, the selling side of the platform. In a pre-handy, pre-Uber, pre-Airbnb, or sorry, pre-handy, pre-Uber, pre-Lyft world, people who wanted flexible work struggle to find that in a stable way. So with Handy, you, you know, once you're approved on the platform, you go through a rigorous background check and vetting process. And after that, you simply log on to the app. You can claim whatever jobs you want. It's a really seamless selling process. And I think once we had that model in mind, really easy buying, really easy selling, in, our, in the summer between first and second year, the business started to scale. We started to see more customers, more pros come into the platform. Business was starting to grow. We had some early capital. And I think that was, it was that moment in time when you realized that a large platform is going to be built here. There will be a large brand that people will flock to for these services. And I think that that's, that, that's when we decided to, to not go back to school. So yes, to, to answer your question, I, I did not finish at, uh, at business school. And you, I think it was just within several weeks of kind of starting to work on the idea over the summer, you'd raised, was it 50,000? And then you'd raise more money by the time that September and the school term started again? So we'd raised $50,000 seed capital to get started uh, as part of Highland Capital's incubator, Summer of Highland. And then at the end of that summer, we raised $2 million or just over $2 million from Highland Capital and General Catalyst. And who did it, because you, did, you didn't do the coding and all that, I presume, in the development. Did you, part of your team, do that? And so you were lucky there that you had that yeah. site. We had some early folks on the team, on the founding team, who, very strong engineering background and really helped us out, built the first iteration of the product. And then as the team started to scale, we continued to add more folks to the engineering team. Uh, Ken, who joined us less than a year ago now, Ken Little, our CTO, uh, has built out the engineering team at Handy, going from 20 people at the beginning of this year to nearly 60 people in engineering and product and design now. How many employees do you have in total right now? Uh, we have approximately 140 people. And what are the plans for the future? So 
I think this capital gives us the ability to continue to invest in the experience for customers and the experience for pros. That's what this is all about. It's all about making sure that when you think about things you need done inside your home, that you turn to Handy as that's the go-to source. Every service to every home is kind of what we want to get to. And for the next six months, we're going to continue to invest in the experience in our existing cities. After that, we're going to look at new services in new cities. And I think towards the middle of next year, you'll see Handy start to look at those things. Any plans come to Ireland anytime soon? Uh, when, I, when, we start, when we decide to come to Ireland, I'll be the first to let you know. <laughs> and so you're here at Web Summit and you actually founded two businesses with the Web Summit founder, Paddy Cosgrave. You founded My Candidate and the Undergraduate Awards, uh, which is all about kind of showcasing great talent among students. Tell us about that. So we started, uh, we started My Candidate to, to figure out how you can give folks access to uh, to uh, candidate profiles in an election and we started the undergraduate awards to identify the best talent, the best undergraduate talent in the world and to create a level of uh, awareness of who the smartest undergraduates in the world were, who are the people who were doing the most interesting research to bring those folks together in Ireland uh, and today the undergraduate awards is the largest undergraduate awards program in the world. It's run by a fantastic program director, Louise Hodgson who's just built that organization out, recruited a phenomenal team. It's got the support of some great partners. Uh, and I think that's, you know, it's something that I'm particularly proud of. It's, it's a great organization, uh, very happy to be a part of it. And finally, you built up an entire real estate development business in Budapest while still in your teens. I think, were you 19 or 18 and still in college? How did you even think about kind of going into real estate development and especially over there? I think Irish people have a fascination with property, a fascination with real estate. Hungary was a really interesting market at the time, uh, and it was great to get involved. Obviously, the market was very young. Uh, it was different to, you know, what some of my call, what some of my friends were doing. But it was a really interesting opportunity uh, and great experience. And you used to kind of just fly out there at weekends, is it? And then like sort buy apartments and do them up. Yeah, so I spent I spent three years going back and I spent two years in college and three years after college going back and forth. Uh, after college, I spent most of my time there for for three years uh, on the ground. It was buying, building, and renovating apartments. And I think that was kind of where the initial some of the initial ideas of this is a really interesting category. So home services, whether it's plumbers or handyman or electricians or carpenters, it's a really interesting category because there's so much friction in the buying process and. That was kind of where some of the initial understanding of how hard it is to get things done inside a home uh, came to us. And just on the subject of Handyman, I know you kind of vet all the people that come into your platform. And I think I read in the past that you said it's harder to get onto Handy than it is to get into Harvard. So we've had over 750,000 people apply to join the Handy platform. Less than 3% of the people actually get approved. Uh, which is a really low accept rate. We do a lot of work on screening, a lot of work on background checks, a lot of work on reference checking uh, to make sure that all of our folks who come to the platform are going to do a great job. We do, obviously, ratings are a key part of the platform to make sure that we deliver a great experience to, uh, great experience to customers. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. 
Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. From the world of the web to the world of cars right now, any sense that Volkswagen was getting to the other side of the emissions debacle was well and truly quashed this week when the company admitted problems with no less than 800,000 cars, including some with petrol engines. I'm joined now by Michael McAleer, Irish Times motoring editor. Michael, I thought this was a diesel problem. Initially it was, and Volkswagen have said, as far as this is concerned, it's mainly diesel. The problem is, by saying mainly diesel, that means it's not just diesel, and therefore people realise it's also petrol. And there's a lot more petrol cars out there. Well, yeah, that's true globally, but the bigger issue is, is not necessarily whether it's petrol or diesel. The key issue is the fact that it's now CO2. And what we've had up to date is NOx, nitrogen oxide, and that emissions is important in the US, but isn't really that relevant in Europe. We don't even measure it in our NCT tests, so it's not necessarily important for us. It, it's important for the greater global greenhouse gases, etc., and nitrous, nitrogen oxide is, a, is a, a carcinogen. However, CO2 is the basis for our uh, tax system and is the basis for most European car tax system, and suddenly 800,000 cars, we don't know where they are, but 800,000 Volkswagen Group cars are now wrongly tagged with their CO2 emissions. That means the tax on those cars is theoretically wrong. And uh, in principle, that would be theoretically lower than it should otherwise be. That's the thing. And if those cars, if any of those cars are in Ireland, that will then allow those consumers to say that the certificate of conformity, the vehicle that they bought, the the tax upon which that that, uh, piece of paper is the foundation for their tax, is wrong, it'll be reissued, the tax is due on it, will the tax be retrospectively sought by the government? The VRT on the tax, which is initially prized, which is which is applied to the initial purchase price, that also will change. So the government will or could have to decide, do we go back to the initial purchaser, ask them for a higher tax rate? And of course, this also allows legal action by those consumers because the cars were not uh, fit for uh, to the purpose that they were sold to the, those consumers as. And I know of at least two solicitors who've been in touch since the announcement this morning and who have said that they're ready to, if this happens in Ireland, they're ready to begin their, their issues. In Ireland, you're dealing with 117,000 cars already uh, that have are going to be recalled. You could expect all, if not well, at least some of those, will take legal action if there's a change to the CO2. And because we don't have class lawsuits in Ireland, that could be up to 116,000 individual cases hitting the courts, which is going to t- slow down not only the repairs of the cars, but it's also going to hit our overcrowded legal system as well. Well, that's a nightmare for the legal system, but it's a total nightmare for Volkswagen. How have they played it in your assessment? This is rumbling on now for weeks, and instead of getting better, it's getting worse. Well, this is, I mean, what we're dealing with here is also if you wind it all the way back to the fact that initially when the EPA were, were, were looking into this area, they denied it throughout. And then after a year's denial, they came out with the admission and they wanted to, hold, to open up and come clean on this. The, the announcement yesterday or last night about the CO2 emissions, that is a result of the internal investigation. So it does seem that they're now coming out and opening up about this. But this 
onion-like uh, uh, scandal. It just keeps coming out with more and more layers to it. And because it's, it's going to take so long to repair these cars, it will stretch well into the end of next year before all these cars are fixed. And as more and more revelations occur, that will extend that deadline even further. How they've handled it will... I don't believe that personally I don't believe that they've handled it very well in terms of owning up to how deep rooted this is in the in the culture and structure of the business there's been claims uh, at congressional level and indeed at our own Oireachtas committee that it was a handful of engineers that seems to be blamed that would that would seem uh, to me slightly difficult to believe because what you had was a, a diesel engine that was developed in a market that doesn't take diesel that has has high strict regulations on NOx and suddenly this diesel engine got through, got under the, the limits and was successful and was going to open up the US market. At no stage did any of them turn around and say, that's a, that's a magnificent engineering achievement. We should patent that. That's extraordinary. And you would have also thought in a scenario where they were resisting investigation and saying, look, there's nothing to see here. Please go away. You would have thought when finally they capitulated for capitulation was what it was, that they would have told the whole truth and that any decision to capitulate would have been predicated on a, an assessment of what exactly was had gone wrong within the company and how deep the rot went. The big issue there is the fact that I, you, one would suspect senior management doesn't really know and that is one of the problems in the culture. They don't know how big the problem is and they don't, they don't necessarily know what was going on in each engineering division. I mean, you got you got to remember that Volkswagen Group comprises up to 13 different divisions, different brands, that household names that the companies are. Sometimes people wouldn't even be aware that Bugatti, Lamborghini, uh, Ducati, the motorbike company, these are all brands within the Volkswagen Group, each of them responding up the ladder to board level. Now, an engineering change from, from there's, uh, there's all different facets within the company, from suspension engineers, and as we've talked about before, every car, is, there's about 10,000 components in the average vehicle, all of them coming from different suppliers and everything. So there's a lot of engineering work at play, but whether they know in detail where the root cause of this at all instances is, that's the biggest problem. Well, that, that's all very well, Michael, but I mean, I'll put it to you that there is something in uh, global business called compliance. Mm. Compliance is a pretty big deal these days. And I mean, this is, we're at the level here of pretty basic compliance, it seems to me. Very complicated software compliance. That's the thing, because the EPA took years to crack into what exactly the software code. But the rules are the rules. Well, yes, but the problem is that, that if, if the software is, is, if the engines are meeting the, the criteria and meeting those rules, then obviously, as far as some elements within the company is concerned, that has been achieved. My thing with the patent as well is the fact that nobody seemed to question why these, this sudden uh, success with this particular diesel engine. Um, and similarly, with their, their announcement now on CO2, I would say as much as there's a definite failing within the Volkswagen Group, there's also a complete failing in the testing regulations and the testing regime. And that's effectively, it's not fit for purpose. It's been generally accepted within the industry that that's been the case because the difference between the testing regime that give us these figures and the re reality on the road is so great that the industry just say they're a benchmark. However, if these figures are benchmarks, you've got to remember that these benchmark figures are used to set our taxation policy and are also in many instances used to set environmental standards and uh, air, air clean, cleanliness uh, policy for cities and urban areas. We take them as being factual when in fact they're merely benchmarks. 
And again, this is going to, to, to widen the debate, is that next month we have the, the great climate change debate in, in, in conference Paris, in yeah. Paris. And Angela Merkel and the EU representatives are going to go there and discuss reducing greenhouse gases with developing nations who are going to hit them over the head with the Volkswagen. Of course they will. I mean, it's inevitable, you'd have to think. Yeah. I mean, this scandal has massive ramifications for them. It has financial ramifications for Germany as well because the share price has plummeted by nearly 44% since its peak this year. There's a major shareholding up to 14% by Lower Saxony, um, one of the the states in Germany. Public finances issue there. Public finances issue for them and also then there's reputational damage to the country. So all of this, and as as you're rightly pointing out as well, there's this huge compliance issues there's huge governance issues about this and this is this was a company that was a model in many ways because of its worker councils again because of its its state involvement and investment in the company this was a, a model of german uh, corporate governance and meeting standards and clearly those standards were let slip whether through negligence or through any other reason uh, that remains or to be ambition open. Ambition undoubtedly, and ironically I was talking to somebody about this the last day, the the last big recall we came across was the Toyota. That was, that was an important one in many ways because you could say that was a safety recall and lives were at risk. That was driven by Toyota's desire to be the biggest car company in the world. And GM have be held that title and the US car companies have held those titles for a long time. Volkswagen announced several years ago that they were going to be the biggest car company in the world. And earlier this year, they achieved that, and now they've come crashing to a halt. The exact same thing happened to Toyota. They decided they wanted to be number one in the world. They got into the truck division. They they pumped out mass volumes of cars, and it seems that, again, the supervision of suppliers and, and product uh, let them down. The uh, chief executive there, Watanabe, uh, had to resign, and Toyota, who's a, a sire of one of the of the one of the founders in Toyota, took over. And his line has always been, "Number one is not that relevant to us anymore. It's about quality." Well, number one turns out to be a perilous crown, it would seem. Michael, is Volkswagen near the end of this? Is this latest admission? Does it give any sense that they they've they've come clean with everything there is to come out with, or is there some anticipation that there's going to be yet more? There'll definitely be more because this is only the start of the investigation. This is, it should be noted that this is the second revelation this week because we, we had the two-litre diesel engines uh, on the 18th of September. At the start of this week, they announced that the three-litre diesel in their Audi and Porsche, which are the, their cash cows, their profit centres, are also involved. And that has implicated Matthias Muller, who's the former boss of um, Porsche, who was then appointed to become the boss of Volkswagen Group with clean hands. He's now been tainted with this debate about whether the three litre is involved and then last night we had the revelations about the CO2 emissions as well this thing will just keep going and the problem we need to remember as well is even if it stopped now it's going to be the end of 2016 before all those cars are fixed Nightmare on Volkswagen Street Michael McAleer thank you very much indeed you've been listening to the Irish Times Business Podcast I'm Arthur Beasley tune in again next time <laughs> <laughs> 